0: I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Glad to have you with us today. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. In this hour of Tavis Smiley, who exactly was J. Edgar Hoover? Of course, most of us know him as not only the first director of the FBI, but also as an autocrat and schemer who strong-armed the rest of the country into submission, a man who gave bonuses to black agents to help set up Black Panther Party leader Fred Hampton, who was killed in a police raid, as you well know, in Chicago while he slept. And, of course, we know Hoover for using lies and blackmail in a failed attempt to coerce Dr. Martin King Jr. to abandon his civil and human rights work by committing suicide. Most of you know that I wrote a book about Dr. King's last year called Death of a King. And in that text, I talk about the pressure they put on King coming directly from the FBI to kill himself. Uh, they essentially said to him, you know, we're going to get you. And uh, we have all this stuff on you. We've been following you and listening to you and you might as well just kill yourself. And they tried to coerce King to do him just that. Thankfully, he did not. But they got him anyway, as you well know. But it raises the question uh, today of who Hoover really was beyond being the one-dimensional tyrant that we are well aware of. Dr. Beverly Gage joins us now to discuss what's being called a crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing new biography. And as we say in the black church, I can say amen to all of that. The book is called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Dr. Gage, an honor to have you on this program. How are you today?
1: I'm um, Great. Thanks so much for having me here.
0: It's my great delight to have you on. Um, it, it, there's so much in this text, it's hard to know where to begin. Let me start with this for you as a, as a writer, uh, as a historian, as a researcher. Why J. Edgar Hoover? Why spend so much time on this man?
1: That is an excellent question. And uh, <laughs> this book took me more than a decade to research and write. And uh, it wasn't because I was so fond of J. Edgar Hoover um, and wanted to spend so many hours um, in, his, uh, in his company. But I did think from the very beginning uh, that he was really one of these critically important figures, one of the most powerful public servants of the 20th century. And I thought that was just a lot more to say about his legacy, his influence. As your introduction suggested, you know, we tend to think about him as uh, this kind of tyrant sitting in a back room, scheming secretly against uh, many people in American life. And there's a lot of truth to that. But I think in some ways, the the more troubling story is that actually, J. Edgar Hoover was really popular for most of his career and had really widespread support in Washington at the country at large. And so it seemed to me uh, there was just a lot to contend with in in rethinking his life story.
0: There is indeed a lot to contend with. And we'll contend with it throughout the course of this hour. He was, in fact, very popular. And in in retrospect, it raises all kinds of questions about why, which we'll get to again in this hour. Let me me do this. I'm going to follow you throughout this entire conversation. That's how I do it. Um, uh, I tell my people all the time, if you think you're leading a conversation as a talk show host, you're doing it the wrong way. Listen to the guests, charitable listening, generous listening, and follow them. And I'm going to do just that for the rest of this hour. And you said something a moment ago that that jumped out at me. I've often made a distinction on this program and beyond between politicians and public servants. Um, The former category, I'm not so fond of. The latter category, which is shrinking these days, public servants, uh, I am very fond of uh, when you can find them. Because I believe there is, um, how might I put this, there is a nobility uh, a, a real nobility in public service, and you referred to him as a public servant. I'm not arguing with your characterization, but um, did you mean to say that, and in what regard would you define him, given all that we know about him or think we know about him, as a true public servant?
1: Well, I think what I meant by that is a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and One is that it is important to distinguish him from electoral politicians, in part because Being part of the federal bureaucracy, being part of the career civil service was really the key to his longevity and influence. Just so, uh, listeners are aware, Hoover became director of the FBI in 1924 Mm -hmm. and he stayed there to 1972. So he was there for 48 years, uh, really at the center of federal power of the security state. So that was one point uh, with that term that we need to think about Mm -hmm. the kind of power he exercised as being, you know, a little different from electoral politics. And then the other piece is that Hoover also did come out of a kind of tradition of government service. He was born in Washington, D.C., to a family that had worked for the federal government. And when he was appointed in the 20s, it really was as a kind of reformer who was championing all of these ideas about expertise and professionalism and uh, and career service in government and so you know it's not what we think of when we think of J Edgar Hoover but it's actually a, a pretty important part of his early legacy and then of the the reputation that brought him to power nope.
0: I received the answer. Just wanted to, just wanted to uh, uh, interrogate that and give you a chance to respond for why you use that term. Now I get it. Um, when we come forward with Dr. Beverly Gage talking about this new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Um, there are all kinds of questions about how he amassed uh, so much power over that 48 year period from 24 to 72 that you heard her mention a moment ago. What he did with that power uh, over that 48 year period, why he was so popular over this particular period of time. Uh, and all the stories that uh, that uh, that we do know about Hoover and many more that we don't know about Hoover, a lot to cover. And we'll get to it in this hour when we come forward with Dr. Beverly Gage on KBLA Talk 1580. We've
2: got a lot to
0: talk about. Good thing we've got three
2: hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Interrogating your assumptions. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Talking
0: with our guest in this hour, Dr. Beverly Gage, about her acclaimed new text, "G-Man: J Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century." Uh, Dr. Gage, let me start with this right quick as I watch our time, and we're gonna move through this hour and uh, build on this uh, foundation. Uh, which starts, to my mind, with the backstory for J. Edgar Hoover. Just tell me a bit about his backstory. Again, we know what we think we know, uh, but uh, you mentioned he was born in D.C. Many of us don't know that. Give me just a bit of his backstory, his family life, and we'll, we'll work our way up to 1924.
1: Sure. Yeah, so he is really a very pure creature of the city of Washington. Um, He's born there in 1895. Um, He's born to a family that he always described as being a kind of idyllic family and his idyllic childhood. When I looked into it, there are some pretty complicated pieces of his family, past murders and suicides. His father suffered from depression. So he actually had a pretty complicated family setting. But there were really two pieces of growing up in D.C. that seemed especially important to me. One was this tradition of kind of career government service that he's just saturated in from his first moment. And the second is that he's born into D.C. at just the moment when the city is really segregating in very formal and very rigid ways. And so he comes of age in this kind of segregationist, southern, um, racist D.C culture that becomes really very much part of uh, how he thinks about the world
0: Mm. what did uh, his being uh, born and raised during that time frame um, how did I should say how how did that impact the way he saw the world I mean I I know that it did Um, is it fair to call him a, 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 a white supremacist in his thinking what tell me tell me how you think he saw the issue of race
1: Yeah, I think that that is a fair characterization in lots of ways. Um, He has a a kind of deeply Uh, racist worldview. The most interesting organization that I came across that helped me to kind of think about this and explain it was his college fraternity, which was a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. It's still around today. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was this fraternity founded in 1865 explicitly to carry on the cause of the White South to honor the memory of Robert E. Lee. And by the time Hoover joined it in the early 20th century, Um, some of its most famous kind of national members and figureheads were people like Thomas Dixon, who was the novelist who wrote the books on which Birth of a Nation, um, Mm -hmm. the famously racist film of 1915, sort of glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. Um, That film was based on on his books. And so Hoover is learning these ideas. Um, He's coming to think about the world as a place of of racial hierarchy. Um, There are some interesting, Interesting moments in his career actually when he when he acts a little bit counter to type on this mm-hmm. front and they 're probably worth talking about but um, but I think it 's certainly a fundamental part of the way uh, he begins to think about the world even before he 's in the government
0: now we'll jump to those things and uh, we'll jump forward and come back with it in just a second here. I want to hear a couple of those things that you uh, that you suggested a moment ago that uh, he uh, sort of um, Uh, Did a did a two step on uh, vis-a-vis the race issue. Uh, But let me just clarify this. I think we're on the same page here. It is fair to say, though, that when he comes to power in 1924, which we'll get back to as head of the FBI, he already has a mindset of white power domination. Yes.
1: I think that that is fair. And he's particularly suspicious of uh, of Black radicals. And this is true through his whole career. So he's suspicious of left-wing radicals in particular. Um, he is uh, especially suspicious of, you know, Black people of many sorts who are involved in organizing and protest politics. But it's really when both of those traditions uh, come together, right? Uh Uh, not only um, kind of his racism, but his suspicion of political radicals and revolutionaries, those tend to be, you know, the kind of most extreme moments in his career.
0: We'll circle back to that to be sure. But you suggested a moment ago, there are a number of uh, occasions where he did not play to type, as it were, on the race front. Give me one or two examples right quick.
1: Yeah, so real quickly, uh, in the 40s, I found that the FBI actually engaged in some pretty extensive, um, investigations into lynchings during that period. They didn't tend to result in especially spectacular prosecutions for a variety of reasons, southern white juries, um, the Justice Department's own hesitations, but, uh, but they did quite a lot of work during the 40s around that issue. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the 60s, which we tend to think about, in terms of the FBI's repression of Martin Luther King, of the Black Panthers, and rightly so, the FBI did have a whole series of operations against the Klan, and in fact, at the very moments that they're going after King, uh, they are going after the Klan uh, using many of the same techniques. Um, and basically, Hoover didn't like uh, didn't like groups that were either defying federal law enforcement power or using uh, using violence in ways that he thought undermined FBI legitimacy. And so, lynching the Klan, they all kind of fit into that frame.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll unpack some of that a bit more as we move forward here. But, uh, again, just trying to follow you. I saw I've, I've, re- I've written, I've written, I've read, rather. I've read most everything you've written, uh, starting with the book and all the uh, the op-eds and pieces written about the book, prepping for our conversation. And I saw a fascinating piece that that you wrote. Uh, I saw it when it came out last week uh, that said to understand the FBI, you have to understand J. Edgar Hoover. I'm coming to that question now because I want to frame this 48 years that he served as director of the FBI from 1924 to 1972. And it is your view that to understand the FBI today, we have to understand J. Edgar Hoover. For those who didn't get a chance to read that piece, can you sort of unpack what you were arguing there?
1: Yeah, well, that piece was uh, first about, uh, something which has been really interesting to watch over the last hmm, six years, especially um, since Trump became a major figure. Right, so Trump has obviously been at war with the FBI mm-hmm. most of the time uh, that that he's been um, in national politics, and as a result, we've had this kind of partisan flip on the FBI, uh, such that um, for the first time in about half a century, at least, uh, Democrats tend to like the FBI better than Republicans. Mm. Uh, And that has a lot to do, obviously, with Trump, with with partisan politics. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to do in that piece was then uh, go back to the history and think about, you know, how does this make sense? And so uh, it's partly uh, that essay was about the fact that for a lot of Hoover's career. A lot of liberals actually did like him. Uh, Figures like Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson. Um, And then it looks at the ways in which uh, both the culture and the structure that Hoover built up during his uh, 48 years at the FBI, I think are still pretty fundamental to certain parts of the FBI's work today.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, FDR, fond of uh, Hoover on some level, as you mentioned. LBJ, fond of Hoover on some level, as you mentioned. The candidates, not so much, huh?
1: Yeah, the Kennedys, not so
0: much. Those were, <laughs>
1: those were years of some uh, actually pretty interesting and often kind of entertaining struggles. I mean, Hoover didn't like the Kennedys, at least in part because they were kind of uh, younger and more casual, <laughs> more dynamic. And so he spends a lot of time, you know, grumbling about things like, why won't Bobby Kennedy wear his tie all the time? <laughs> mm. They're pretty funny memos.
0: Yeah. H- how would you define his relationship or lack thereof with the Kennedys?
1: Well, it started out pretty friendly in lots of ways because he had been close to Joe Kennedy, the kind of patriarch of the Kennedy family. They were friendly and mutually supportive. And then he had actually worked with Robert Kennedy in particular uh, a little bit when Robert Kennedy um, had been working on congressional committees, investigations into organized crime. So at first, Hoover would have preferred to have Nixon win in 1960 because they were very close. Uh, But he wasn't super upset about the Kennedys initially. But a few things start to happen. Um, One is this kind of culture clash between the Kennedy style and Hoover's much, much uh, older, more conservative style. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another is that the Kennedy administration um, really suggests that the FBI uh, is not doing enough on organized crime, and Hoover is very angry about that. Um, there are some interesting discoveries about john kennedy 's extramarital uh, sexual life that Hoover kind of bats around as ways to uh, uh, to keep himself in the in the loop um, during the Kennedy years you know interestingly, on civil rights stuff. Um, They are not as far apart as our images of them would suggest. You know, it's Robert Kennedy who approves the King wiretaps Mm -hmm. at first. You know, John Kennedy is actually pretty hesitant about moving on civil rights until 1963, really. And, uh, you know, and Kennedy is very concerned about keeping the support of white Southern Democrats, who are this key part of the Democratic Party at that point, and who are one of Hoover's kind of favorite and most powerful constituencies.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, the, the longer you talk, the more questions you give me, so I, I'm trying to keep up with you. Uh, <laughs> I can
1: give you no, 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 no.
0: I, I, I love it. I love it. That's why we have an hour. We, this, this, ain't, this ain't soundbite radio. We got time to unpack these things. That's why we do three hours every day. Um, what, what do you make right quick of the irony um, that, again, given even today in 2022, when we frame J. Edgar Hoover and we frame the Kennedys, um, black people famously know this, that you, in, for years in black churches, uh, you'd see uh, on fans, I, the, the fans we would wave to keep cool in church, you'd see a picture of Jesus, Dr. King and JFK or or Bobby Kennedy on a fan at church. There was this relationship that black people have with the Kennedys. And so when you frame the Kennedys for black people and you frame J. Edgar Hoover for black people, you get obviously two uh, two very different reactions. And yet I hear your point about where they were initially on civil rights. Bobby Kennedy thankfully evolved over time, but what do you make of the irony that they really weren't that far apart initially on civil rights?
1: Yeah, well, I think it was really key to the way the Democratic Party existed in that moment, right, where you had the solid white South in the Democratic Party. And so a lot of Democratic politicians, uh, whatever their, their, you know, true views and desires might have been, um, were pretty hesitant about um, embracing, you know, embracing civil rights. Uh, certainly, it's true that both John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy evolved mm-hmm. quite a lot over the course of their lives in a way yeah. that a figure like J. Edgar Hoover didn't. Um, but it's also true that you know, well up to the end of the of the Kennedy presidency and even beyond, uh, they were also working with Hoover um, to conduct surveillance. Uh, they you know worked with Hoover to put pressure on King to separate himself from uh, a couple of uh, advisors and colleagues that the FBI was saying had ties to the Communist Party, and I think did have ties to the Communist Party as, uh, as that goes. Um so yeah, I mean, but they did definitely evolve in ways that uh, that Hoover never evolved. And actually, one of the things that was so interesting to me about his career was to see really the continuity of his ideas and policies from from very early on, from the teens, uh, all the way up to the 1970s.
0: Yep. Um, speaking of uh, the candies and Hoover, one final question in that regard: you mentioned organized crime. Um, given the research, the research that you did for this acclaimed new book, G man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the making of the American century. uh, What is the definitive answer, uh, uh, the definitive takeaway uh, vis-a-vis Hoover's relationship with organized crime?
1: Yeah, Hoover is often accused, and I think to some degree, rightly, of not having moved against organized crime early enough or comprehensively enough, particularly um, in the 1950s. So I didn't find much hard evidence of, you know, there are all sorts of rumors and conspiracies and accusations that he was sort of in bed with organized crime or being blackmailed by the mafia, um, you know. uh, by the standards of evidence that I hold as a historian, I didn't see much uh, much evidence of all of that. But it is true that he was pretty hesitant about moving into organized crime because mm-hmm. he was worried about whether he had jurisdiction for it. Uh, he was worried it would corrupt his agents. And then the FBI did start doing some of this in the mm-hmm. in the late 50s, but they were doing it secretly and sometimes illegally, right? So planting yeah. bugs uh, in the, head, uh, the headquarters of the Chicago mob, for instance. And so they weren't going to go around talking about that stuff Mm -hmm. for for a variety of reasons.
0: I I want to ask but one question about this for for obvious reasons. Um, But since you went there, uh, referencing uh, uh, Hoover's uh, uh, attitude, for lack of a better word, uh, about the sexual predilections, shall we say, of one JFK, and we also know he was just as titillated uh, uh, by the sexual predilections of one Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When we come forward uh, after news, traffic, and sports, I want to come back to that because much has been written, much has been said uh, about Hoover's, um, uh, how might I put this, his sexuality, his own sexual uh, peccadilloes. Uh, and I want to, to to learn what you discovered about that specifically. It is fascinating, always fascinating for me that he was so um, peeping Tom-ish, if you will, on the Kennedys. Uh, peeping Tom, as I said, on Dr. King. He's got people wiretapped. He's listening to their, you know, their activities. Again, trying to be, uh, it's a family show here, listening to their activities, their sexual activities. And yet there are all kinds of questions um, about uh, Hoover's sexuality. And I, I want to finally get a word on what you learned about that. Specifically, uh, we'll ask a question about that and move on to other things. Uh, that I find uh, more fascinating in this new book called G Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. The author of that text is Dr. Beverly Gage. More with her after news, traffic, and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.
2: Courage contagious. is contagious. We're KBLA Talk 1580. We knew you'd stick around. This is LA's home for progressive talk radio. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580.
0: Our guest in this hour, in case you've just tuned in, is Dr. Beverly Gage. She is author of the critically acclaimed new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. It is on everybody's, and I do mean everybody's, from the New York Times to the Washington Post to the L.A. Times to... Publishes weekly. Run the list. Everybody is saying this is one of the best books of the year. And uh, I am honored to have Dr. Beverly Gage in conversation about her new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. Uh, Century. We've already learned a lot about J. Edgar Hoover in the first 30 minutes of this program. And now in the back half of this hour, a great deal more to learn, courtesy of her uh, fine uh, research. Uh, For this text, which took her a decade to write. Uh, And uh, finally, it's out. And we're pleased again to be in conversation with her. I was asking before News Trafficking Sports uh, about uh, Hoover being so um, so titillated, so interested in the sex lives of the Kennedys, uh, John and Robert, and the sex life of Dr. Dr. King, as we well know. Um, What do we know about his own sexual uh, peccadilloes and predilections?
1: It's a funny combination of things that were very open and then things that were very hidden and, and secret and, and hard to get at as a historian. Um, I think the most famous story for most people is the idea that, that Hoover liked, uh, to wear women's dresses, mm-hmm. which again, he, he might or might not have, but, uh, we don't have any real evidence that that's true in, in a way, um, that makes, uh, that makes sense, or is persuasive to me. But what we do have in great number uh, is evidence of his relationship with Clyde Tolson, who was the number two man at the FBI for most of Hoover's career, and who was by far the most important relationship in Hoover's life. So they not only worked together, but they traveled together, they went to nightclubs together, um, they did basically everything that uh, a social couple or spouses would do together. Um, And in fact, one of the most, uh, I think to me, intriguing pieces of evidence about what that relationship was, were Hoover's photo albums. Um, And there are lots of photographs in this book, but these were private photo albums, and a lot of them were very intimate uh pictures of uh, him at the beach with Tolson, kind of hanging out in hotel rooms um, that showed you know a, a really intimate and in many ways quite loving relationship. Now we don't really know what they were doing uh, in the bedroom mm-hmm. exactly, but they were clearly each other's you know most most important relationship and they, and they really functioned as uh as a couple.
0: Yep, um, I, I know that I won't get into trouble with you using the word complex to describe <laughs> to describe uh, J Edgar Hoover. But when when I say he was a complex man, um, unpack that for me as as you see it from from the through the Beverly Gage prism.
1: Well, on his uh, on his sexuality, <laughs> we can start there. Mm-hmm. So I said he's he's got this pretty open relationship, but of course he is militantly policing what the meaning of that relationship is. So if you suggested that he was uh, a gay man, um, you might actually get an FBI agent showing up at your door saying, you know, you must never say these things about our fine FBI director. Um, and similarly, you know, he policed and had purged from the government, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of gay federal employees um, in this period known as the Lavender Scare. So in his own kind of internal life, there's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack. I would say for me, the biggest kind of complicated political story of Hoover is that he puts together two things that we don't really necessarily think as going together. And one is this tradition of career, professional, government service that he really was part of, especially in his early years, what we might think of as a liberal or progressive tradition. Um, And then this kind of deep social conservatism on things like race, on things like religion, um, certainly on anti-communist which is the big cause of his life. And so he puts these two things together um, in ways that I think is pretty uncommon. Uh, It's certainly uncommon today. And uh, so I kind of try to explain his story um, as some tensions and overlaps between those two.
0: Speaking of race uh, and uh, the complexities of J. Edgar Hoover, we established earlier in this conversation that he came to power uh, in 1924, when he started his 48-year reign, uh, and, and some might say reign of terror, uh, almost 50 years at, as director of the FBI. But clearly, um, uh, he had on his mind this notion of white uh, and in his ethos, uh, this notion of white power domination, white supremacy. So no surprise here to black people particularly that he would go after Fred Hampton, Hampton Fred Hampton that he is in Chicago, uh, powerful, powerful and popular black uh, pantheon. Black Panther, say it easy, Tavis. Black Panther Party leader in Chicago. We all know about COINTELPRO Pro going after the Black Panther Party writ large. We know, of course, about uh, his his spying on Dr. King and suggesting to King he ought to just kill himself. These stories are uh, pretty well known in the Black community, obviously, and beyond. But be, but again, beyond what you said earlier about the ways he was already indoctrinated when it comes to race, when he took over the FBI. What was it that just animated his going after? black people?
1: Well, I think in some ways, he was a pretty typical, uh, you know, representative of a kind of segregationist view that held sway in Washington, it held sway in a lot of the Congress for most of his lifetime, um, and in a lot of the country as well. Um, And so, uh, I think what made him unique is that he was able to kind of build a bureaucracy and build a federal police system around many of those ideas. And that, of course, gave him tremendous influence and power. Um, and, you know, that consisted of everything from the way he selected who an FBI agent could be. And from very early on, he was very, very specific about who he wanted that to be, right? It's still Mm -hmm. who we kind of imagine as an FBI agent, certainly during that era, the tall conservative white guy in the suit. Um, And he drew a lot of that generation out of his own university, which was George Washington University, um, and out of his fraternity, Kappa Alpha, which I described earlier as being Mm. this quite explicitly racist, racist, segregationist fraternity, um, and, you know, so at any rate, uh, he refused to hire black agents uh, most of his career, even when as early as the 30s and 40s, he's under pressure from the NAACP. And then he, you know, really came to view uh, all forms of kind of black political participation, particularly protest and civil disobedience, um, really as just being a, a, a threat to what he saw as the way the world was supposed to work. And so, you know, he he, he can Conducted just incredible levels of surveillance and then uh, harassment.
0: Yeah. Um, two questions here uh, about the power that he amassed that you referenced a moment ago. As we established again early in this conversation, forty-eight years as director of the FBI, nineteen twenty-four to nineteen seventy-two. Um, beyond the obvious, which is you know just you know the passage of time. Uh, the longer you stay in a particular position, the more power ultimately one amasses. Beyond that. Tell me more about how he did, in fact, amass so much power.
1: Yeah, he's sort of a master of the, the bureaucratic arts. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So uh, our image of him as having files and having secret files on people, and that being a source of his power is certainly real. It's there, um, and it's one of the tools that he has, but he has a lot of other tools as well. Uh, one is, you know, building a whole institution that's kind of in his image and answerable to him. So just the way he, he hired his agents... He was also incredibly good at cultivating support at the White House and in Congress. One of my favorite chapters in the book is about how when Congress begins to have Committees that need professional staff, which is really in the, in the 40s, uh, he ends up staffing all of these important committees with FBI agents mm. or with former FBI agents, and so he's just got all of this kind of power and influence in that direction. And then the other piece that really fascinated me was how good he was at public relations and then at building a kind of popular constituency mm. for the FBI. So he would turn. To to kind of conservative groups like the American Legion or the Daughters of the American Revolution, and they were kind of his, um, you know, his grassroots army who would come to his defense when he was under criticism. Mm-hmm.
0: To your point, um, now and uh, made earlier for that matter, he was very popular uh, over that 48-year uh, span from 24 to 72. And when we come forward, I want to ask you. Um, for examples of the ways in which you see, as the researcher of this fine text, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, in the making of the American century, the ways in which you see um, him strong-arming the nation, the country into submission. What are all the things, not all the things, but some of the things all these years later uh, that we are operating inside of or or frames that we uh, still cannot escape uh, that have to do with the way that he strong-armed the country into 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 submission, as he wanted us to be. Uh, again, it's a lot of power to uh, amass and the wield over a 48-year period. Uh, and I think in some ways we're still feeling the the impact, the effect of the Hoover era. Kind of hard not to. We'll get uh, Dr. Gedge's take on that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to
2: like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley. And get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues when we come forward. forward. Less BS per broadcast. Fewer microaggressions per megawatt. KBLA Talk 1580.
0: Dr. Beverly Gage, are there examples you can give us of um, the uh, ongoing impact of Hoover's popularity and his power?
1: Yeah, the popularity was really one of the most interesting things to me because I think we have this idea of Hoover as this, this man that nobody liked. Um, and when you look at most of his career, he, he actually has pretty widespread support. Probably the greatest symbol of that to me is a, is a poll that was done in 1964, early 65, right after this moment, um, when Hoover famously calls King quote, the most notorious liar in America. Mm -hmm. Um, It becomes a big public dispute. Um, But if you look at the opinion polls after that had all played out, you know, the question is, whose side are you on? Uh, One poll had 50 percent of people siding with Hoover, uh, just 16 percent siding with King and a whole bunch of the rest uh saying that they, that they didn't know and that's so different from how mm-hmm. we tend and and rightly so you know to think about who you ought to be supporting and who you ought to be condemning in that scenario it just is one of those kind of historical moments that i think so important to think about um and flip some things uh on its head uh but in any case uh what what do we still see from hoover i mean i think every movement of the 1960s would have been been different without Mm. J. Edgar Hoover in office. Civil rights, black power, the new left, the anti-war movement. They were so shaped by this kind of struggle uh, with the FBI. And it's worth thinking about, you know, what what, what might have happened um, if someone else had been in that position. And then I think the structure of the FBI itself really comes out of Hoover's time. We have a lot more restrictions on, on the bureau, and rightly so, uh, than when Hoover was here. But but some pretty fundamental elements are still there.
0: Yeah, there have been a long-standing debate in this country about his name on the uh, on the building. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, so uh the current FBI building which is uh right there uh kind of along along the mall in DC just off the mall um, is the J Edgar Hoover building. Um, it was built in the 1970s and and named uh for him right right after he died. Right now uh the FBI is probably going to be building a new headquarters in either Maryland or Virginia, because it's not a great building. Uh, and the question is, you know, should his name be there? I, I certainly don't think so. Um, I think we can let, uh, you know, that that era um, be what it was. But I would not advocate for having his name uh, on, on the new Bureau headquarters.
0: In our final moments with Dr. Beverly Gage, a couple more questions I want to get out to her, including... Uh, what she makes of the fact that over his forty-eight years of public service, as she mentioned at the top of this conversation, um, she also acknowledges that he didn't change his that he didn't change his mind much. He didn't grow. Um, somebody said change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Change is inevitable, but growth is optionable, optional. Optional. Uh, did Hoover just uh, opt not to grow uh, over that forty-eight year period? Not much change in who he was when he left uh, versus when he came in, and that's that's. That's disturbing in a lot of ways. Uh, And I want to finally close by asking whether or not, when reading this book, G Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century, whether or not we're going to be tempted to change our minds about what we think we know and like or dislike about J. Edgar Hoover. Dr. Gage, his final comments when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.
2: A safe place to go loud, 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 a great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk
0: 1580.
2: Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. We've
0: got about four minutes left in conversation in this hour, which I've immensely uh, enjoyed and learned a great deal from, as I'm sure you have, with our guest, Dr. Beverly Gage. Uh, the new critically acclaimed text is called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Two questions here. One, uh, how do you process, Dr. Gage, by your own admission that, uh, as I said earlier, change is an inevitable, growth is optional who uh, didn't seem to grow a whole lot over that 48-year period.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great framework, because he was actually pretty good at changing when he needed to, in the sense that the FBI would come under pressure, he would adapt to that, he'd take on a new set of duties, uh, sometimes master them pretty well, um, and respond to circumstance. But uh he didn't change his ideas very much, right? Mm-hmm. What he's saying in 1917 looks an awful lot like what he's saying in 1972, and, and it's one of the reasons that he's so interesting to study.
0: Yep. Socrates once said, uh, as I recall, that the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life, not worth living. What did you learn about him um, uh, in, in that regard, that he wasn't given too much introspection?
1: It is. That he himself was not much given to to introspection, but um, I hope that the biography does give us uh, nonetheless a kind of more complicated story of of who he was and particularly of the impact he had on the rest of us. Because uh, you know, I think that having one-dimensional villains can can be useful sometimes, but mm. uh, but often it can blind us to to the real history and to, to understanding how powerful really works
0: nope I'm glad you said that and I couldn't agree more that's why I wanted to have this conversation never mind what we think we know about Diego Hoover I'm always open to as I say all the time around here having my um, re uh, my assumptions reexamined and always open to having my inventory of ideas expanded about people and places and the world and issues And so I didn't want to not have the conversation based on what I thought I knew of J. Edgar Hoover. So I think you're right. Uh, We know he's a one dimensional tyrant. But what else is there that needs to be excavated? And you've done that quite well in this book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. My exit question is simply this. Uh, When we get a chance to read this book that everybody is choosing as one of the best books of the year, it will be award winning on a variety of fronts. I am certain. Will the text, uh, you think, change our minds ultimately about J. Edgar Hoover?
1: I hope so. Um, It's not intended to be a revisionist book. I'm not seeking to to redeem Hoover, but uh, I am kind of seeking to to make him more complicated, um, and in particular, to remind everyone that he had lots of support, lots of popularity. And so the things that we want to condemn about J. Edgar Hoover uh you know uh, we might want to contend with a, as a country not just make him uh, a scapegoat but but think about what it what it all means yeah, for, well, for the rest of us
0: allied one final 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 quick exit question um whether or not you think those persons in power today in our arena of law enforcement uh can stand to learn lessons from the book about Hoover
1: oh I think so absolutely I mean one lesson is don't leave one guy in <laughs> Power for forty eight years, years yeah. but,
0: uh, I don't
1: think we're in much danger of doing that uh, again, but yeah, I think the book is, is full of cautionary tales um mm. about what it what it means to be kind of too fond of your own power, um to not question your own assumptions and and, and some of the real damage that can come as a result.
0: It's a powerful polemic, and everybody's talking about it, and I'm honored to have had the hour to talk to Dr. Beverly Gage about her critically acclaimed new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. Congratulations on all the good that I know is to come and all the honors and awards you'll receive for a book that everybody's talking about, and good to talk to you about it, Dr. Gage. Thanks for your time. Happy holidays.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Good to have you on. Serious mental decline is not an inevitable part of aging. You can boost your short and long term brain health and significantly lower the risk of dementia. We will tell you how when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.
2: KBLA 1580, Santa centim-